The Old Testament text is the 99th Psalm. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity, you have executed justice, and in righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship him at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're told that uh, we should tremble in the presence of the Lord and um, I think you can see that right at the start there in verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. We're included in that uh, word, peoples, so this is something that uh, we're told should characterize us, this reverent fear that is described in this way. I, uh, I think uh, it's more or less conventional wisdom that Reverence is out of fashion. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, but it's something that it's hard to miss. And uh, I think, uh, you know, more or less, kind of the watchword of our society, of our social environment today is lighten up, you know. Don't let things get, you know, under your skin. Um, Don't take things too seriously. Kind of look at the world with a little twinkle in your eye and just kind of laugh at everything that comes your way. I mean, nothing's all that important. Nothing is all that important. I think, uh, though, there are some things that call for gravity, right? I mean, there are some things that really are serious. I, just this past week, I watched uh, on YouTube. Yep, I, I go on YouTube every once in a while. I watched the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Washington, D.C. Fascinating. Now, what I actually watched was a couple of Afghan tribal people watching the changing of the guard. And it was worth doing it that way because to see how they appraised what was going on helped you to see that this is something that kind of communicates across cultural lines. This is not just sort of like a Western thing, you know, reverence for those who've made great sacrifices in war for their you know, fellow countrymen. This is something they understood. And, and, and another thing they, they kind of were taken with was when the changing of the guard was introduced, those who were present, who were there to witness the changing of the guard, there was an officer who addressed the crowd and told them how to behave. There were certain things they were not to do. They were not to talk. They were to remain standing during the entire time. They sort of the, the whole tenor of the, of, the, of the event was serious, solemn, respectful. And you know what? No one in the crowd said, I'm not going to do that. 
No, that wouldn't be authentic. That wouldn't be me being me. Instead, they got with it. They said to themselves, I would imagine in their own minds, this really is a solemn and significant event that I'm here to witness. And I need to get with the program. I need to be reverent. Now, one of the things as a pastor uh, I have an opportunity to do that most people don't is I get to hang out with funeral directors. Funeral directors don't have many friends. You probably can think of reasons why they don't have many friends. Uh, And uh, funeral directors uh, tend to be uh, people who I think give you some insight into the kind of the state of the culture. Uh, Particularly uh, because oftentimes uh, families who own a funeral home have owned it for several generations. So it's kind of of a family business. It's something that's passed down over time. And so often people who are funeral directors are people who grew up in the homes of funeral directors. And they get a window into just kind of what's going on in in the world. And like I said, I've probably over the course of my ministry, uh, I've had the honor of conducting maybe 80 funerals. And uh, at some of the places that I've served as pastor, I've, that's given me an opportunity to get to know some of those guys because <laughs> we see each other. Hey, Bob, hey, Chris, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I remember one time asking one of those guys, is it just me or do people not know what to do at funerals anymore? He said, no, it's not just you. It's everywhere. He said, it's become really a problem. Uh, you know, it used to be that you'd walk around with a, a band on your arm, you know, and people would, you know, a black band, and it would indicate that you were in mourning, and people would know what to do with that. You know, they would understand that, you know, the, that you're mourning and that this is uh, something that should be acknowledged by other people, uh, and consequently, you know, maybe even be an occasion for expressing, you know, condolences and so forth. That doesn't happen anymore. And, and when, you know, funeral processions, you know, were kind of the thing back in the day where, you know, a, a funeral procession would proceed through a city on its way to the graveyard, everybody would make way. People would get out of the way, respectively watch the funeral procession go by. He says, that doesn't happen anymore. We have problems with people butting in, cutting people off, getting mad, honking horns. This is the situation that we face now. And then when it comes to the actual service itself, you know, the funeral service, People don't know how to behave. They don't know how to pay their respects. They don't know how to dress. They don't know what to do. It's really a sad situation that we find ourselves in. And I said, yeah, I agree. It's a sad situation we find ourselves in that we can't even demonstrate reverence and respect at the death of a fellow human being. That's the situation we find ourselves in. So I think uh, we kind of uh, need to get in touch with the fact that there are some things that are weighty by nature. Levity, gravity, have you ever heard you know, those two words used to express you know, lightheartedness, sort of sorrowfulness or seriousness? There's a reason for that, because weightiness is an appropriate analog to what we're talking about here. In fact, the word that we translate into the English word glory in Hebrew simply means heavy. Heavy, kabod. In other words, there are things that are heavy, substantial, significant, call for respect. And when it comes to the Lord, He is the one that we should regard most respectfully. He is our maker. He is the judge. We are to fear Him. And uh, it's simply because the Lord reigns that we are to fear Him. Uh, You don't have to kind of like feel it in order for it to be true. 
It's just true, and you ought to feel it. You get what I'm getting at? Facts precede feelings. Your feelings don't work up the facts. And this is what we need to get in touch with. The Lord reigns. He's enthroned upon the cherubim. Now, to an Israelite, that would have been an awesome thought. But to contemporary Americans, it brings to mind little cupids. You know, when we think of cherubs, we tend to think of what? Pudgy babies with wings. This is a 19th century depiction. That was, by the way, a very bad time <laughs> when it comes to matters of gravity and seriousness. And uh, what we see there is basically uh, this sort of cupid kind of figure, this chubby baby, is, is used to represent the cherub or the cherubim in Scripture. But we, we actually have a, an account of uh, the throne of God and its being born by the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1. And so I thought it would be worthwhile to spend a little time there and give you an introduction to what this really should be sort of, sort of visualized like. So here we have in Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 4, these words. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. For, uh, as for the likeness of the faces of uh, uh, each had a human face, and four had the face of a lion on the right side, and four had the face of an ox on the left side, and four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of, the, of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward wherever the spirit would go. They went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flashing or a flash of lightning. Then jump down to verse 28. By the way, these are cherubim. No chubby babies. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so, as, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, 
and I heard the voice of one speaking. That's the throne on the cherubim. Now, if you saw that, would you laugh? Would you joke? Would you make light of what you saw? Or would you fall on your face and say, the glory of the Lord, this is heavy. This is serious. This calls for reverence. This calls for respect. Now, the thing to keep in mind with all of this is that when it comes to the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is not something that the Lord needs. It's not as though the Lord wakes up in the morning and says, I sure hope people pay attention to me today. I hope they take me seriously. I hope they shake when I walk in the room. God is not a narcissist. He doesn't think in those terms. The fear of the Lord is something that we need because with that fear comes in a sort of a seriousness about the consequences of our lives and the fact that our lives stand under judgment. It's the Lord who judges us. And uh, in his might, he loves justice. Because that's the case, we should also love justice. And the Lord executes equity. He does what uh, needs to be done in order to execute justice in our lives. And the Lord is righteous, and because that's the case, we should be righteous. We should conduct ourselves justly, equitably, dealing with the people that we interact with in the course of our lives, and we should be righteous in character. So at the core, we're uh, really what we should be in God's presence because we are always under examination. We're always under his judgment. And we owe him, we owe him reverence because he is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our redeemer. He is our judge. We owe him reverence. This is not something that's uh, optional, in other words. Now, in this psalm, we're also told about some middlemen. Did you notice this? So we have the Lord upon his uh, throne, and we're told that that, uh, the people's... uh, should tremble in his presence. And then we're told about in verses uh, 6 and 7, some fellows by the names of Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. Let me read that for you again. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Now, Generally speaking, middlemen are not very popular. I don't know if you've had the misfortune of being a middleman, uh, but uh, if you if it found yourself in that position, you might find yourself uh, kind of between the rock and the hard place, so to speak. But uh, there's also a sense in which we all kind of know that middlemen can uh, kind of be self-serving, self-serving in, in the way they go about their work, rather than actually you know, fulfilling the responsibilities that, that, that have been entrusted to them. Uh, This is what we refer to as corruption. (laughs) And we have evidence of that in Scripture. In fact, the sons of Samuel, Samuel who is named here, his sons were noted uh, as being worthless men because they were on the make. They were self-serving in the course of their service to God. And uh, because of that, uh, Samuel's house came under judgment. And this is also the occasion for Samuel uh, well, I mean, actually, it's sons of Levi. I'm sorry, sons of Levi. So Samuel was the, the person that God brought into the scenario, the, to the situation, in order to replace the work or to replace the position within which the sons of Eli found themselves. So it's in Samuel uh, chapter 2, verse 12, 
That's why I uh, substituted names there when I should have said the sons of Eli. But it's the sons of Eli who were referred to as worthless men. And uh, I think, you know, because we have this sense that sometimes cler- clergy go bad, people who represent God sometimes don't conduct themselves in, w- in a way that's uh, genuinely helpful uh, or actually represents God and, and, his, tr- and uh, his own interests and cause, that uh, we fall back upon the notion that, you know, we can just have a personal relationship with God and we don't really need them at all. That, you know, that's the thing that matters that you have a personal relationship with God, and consequently, middlemen are actually more of a problem than a help. I'd like to think a little bit about this with you, because here we have in this passage uh, some middlemen committed to us, as not just simply having been there and having done their jobs, but by implication necessary for the work that was performed. There's a term in Latin, and the term is tertium quid. Has anyone ever heard the phrase or the term tertium quid? You don't have to raise your hands. That's a rhetorical question. But it's basically a a term that refers to a third thing, a third thing. So if you have one party and you have another party, you often need a third party to bring the two parties together. Am I right, Josh? You need to be like a real estate agent that brings buyers and sellers together. I'm picking on Josh because I, yeah, <laughs> he's a realtor. He does this all the time. I, I did some of this in the past as well. But there's this third party, the tertium quid, the third thing that bridges the gap, that brings the two parties together. And we, we see this all over the place in our lives. For example, language, the English language, is a thing. It's bridging a gap between you and me right now. If you understand English, if you speak English, this is the tertium quid. It's the thing that brings us together. We can see it in other settings. You know, the United States Postal Service is the tertium quid. It is the means by which that letter that was sent five weeks ago finally arrives at your house. But that's the, that's the idea. The tertium quid is the thing that connects the two things. Now, many of us think that, you know, we have Scripture, we have the Holy Spirit. Why do we need people? I remember one time I was in Sunday school, uh, and I was teaching it, and uh, I asked rhetorically uh, the question, where do we get our Bibles from? And one of the women didn't realize that she didn't need to respond. She just said, from the store. I said, okay, yeah, that's true. That's not what I was getting at. We have a lot of people that have labored over the centuries to preserve the Scriptures and pass them down to us to make sure that they were, you know, uh, appropriately uh, translated into the vernacular so that we can understand them. So we have to rely on translators who understand Koine Greek and Hebrew. They're performing their work to make that scripture available to us. Yes, there are stores, but there have also been copyists before you know printing presses existed who did their work in order to make sure you have your Bible. So even though it may seem like it's just you and Jesus alone in your prayer closet at home, There are thousands of people who made that possible. And God used those people. Never forget that. It's not just you and Jesus on the hillside. And even the fact that you can think of Jesus with you on the hillside is because you've had some teachers who talked to you about prayer and taught you how to pray. In other words, there have been people in the course of your lives Uh, who have been helpful to you in order to develop that personal relationship with God. 
So I don't take a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ you know, for granted at all. Uh, it's important, but you need to recall and remember and never forget God has used people, other human beings, as faulty and as uh, you know, prone to sin as anybody to make it possible for you to have that personal relationship with him. So don't forget that. And we see here these three men named, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. And we're told that uh, they kept the testimonies. Notice that in verse 7. So let me take you back there. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them, they kept his testimonies. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. I'll get to that part in a minute, but I want to focus in on the testimonies. These testimonies, as you can see, were delivered visibly in the presence of the Israelites. God spoke to Moses from the, the, uh, the cloud, and he uh, spoke through Samuel. And this was done publicly, as I noted. And this public work that was performed by Moses and Aaron and Samuel was for the benefit of an entire community of people who were bound together by their covenant with God, and they had received the testimony. Now, what is that about? They heard this testimony. What testimony is being referred to? You know, when I think about a testimony, I tend to think about being in a courtroom, right? You know, putting your hand on a Bible and swelling, swearing to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, and then you're cross-examined. You know, you give your testimony in court. Well, of course, the Lord is the highest authority, and the only one he can swear uh, uh, you know, by is himself. And when he gives his testimony, what is he saying? Well, what we are having you know, presented to us here is that testimony, what I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of bondage, out of Egypt. That's the testimony. And they remembered that testimony. And they proclaimed that testimony to the people. And there were implications, right? Because I have delivered you, you shall serve me alone and have no other gods. So as you unpack it, you can see that the testimony uh, is followed by the obedience of the people who hear the testimony. And not just, you know, in private, all alone, inwardly in your hearts, as important as that is, but publicly, verbally, visibly, in the world that God has made. So there is a visible dimension to this, even as, though, even as there is a kind of inward, invisible dimension to this. Both those things have to be going on or, or sort of pursued. There is what you, know, you need to do in the private recesses of your hearts, and then there is what the church needs to do and God's people need to do in the public open air in the world that God has made. And that's why it's not just about you and your personal relationship with God. As important as that is, it's about both. It's about both. Now, with these things in mind, we come to the last thing I want to bring to your attention, and that is the answers that the Lord gave to them. See there in verse 8, God is speaking from his throne, 
And we're told that he answered them when they addressed him. And you were a forgiving God to them, to Moses, to Aaron, to Samuel, but also to the people that they represent in his presence. But an avenger of their wrongdoings. So there's two sides to judgment. One is the forgiving. I think that that's an important thing to remember. It's a judge who's able to forgive you because the judge has an authority to do just that, to be merciful to you and say to you that that price has been paid. You don't need to pay it yourself. You were forgiven. But then uh, also the judge is an avenger of wrongs. So there are things that need to be addressed. That implies at least a couple of things. One is this. Did you notice that there's no third category? Innocent. There's just two, forgiven and uh, punished. That's it, which implies what? We're guilty. Just implies that we're guilty. Uh, When we walk into the presence of the Lord, we become uh, very conscious of the fact that we're unworthy. Not just kind of because we're human and frail and mortal, uh, but because we're sinful and fallen and God is holy. So we're all guilty. Uh, And because that's the case, we need both. We need both. We need forgiveness and we need God to avenge the wrongs. You've been perhaps sinned against, uh, even though you yourself have definitely sinned. We We serve a God who is forgiving and just, who avenges wrongs. And this puts us in a very, I think, uh, sort of an uh, important place to uh, sort of reflect on our our situation, sort of this existential dilemma that we find ourselves in. We need a God who at one and the same moment forgives us of our sins and at the same time is just and righteous and doesn't let things just slide. In other words, we need a God who doesn't grade on the scale. We need a God who has a standard that applies absolutely firmly in every situation, including our own. How are we possibly going to um, deal with this? Well, we can't. We can't. Generally speaking, the way people try is they try to put, on, put their best face on things or you know, try, to, try to present themselves as just Uh, and pretend that things didn't happen that they know did. This is called (laughs) self-righteousness, right? When we justify ourselves and try to, through our behavior, give the impression that we are what we're not, which is sinless and holy. So what hope do we have? Can God forgive us and at the same time be just? Yes. And he's done that through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ has taken upon himself the guilt and the punishment that we deserve by dying for us, he's atoned for our sins. And God can forgive us because they have been paid. He can say, in your case, because of what he's done, you're free. And that's the glorious free gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't stop there, of course, because Jesus is vindicated on the third day and raised from the dead. And because we're united to him, we get to enjoy 
that resurrection ourselves. It's a, it's a marvelous story. That's a whole other sermon. Come back another time. Anyway, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for being uh, the, our creator and our sustainer uh, and our judge and our redeemer through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.